Hey there, everyone. This is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. It is Thursday, September 28th, and uh, my partner, Schwann, will be joining us shortly. He just let me know he's running a few minutes behind, so just wanted to go ahead and get the show started anyway because, you know, we have some things to talk about today. It is a slow news week for uh, mixed martial arts. It is a weekend with no fights. Uh, but at least no major fights. I'm sure that there's regional action going on around the country. But we have two events to talk about from this past weekend with Bellator 183 and um, UFC Fight Night 117. <coughs> Excuse me. Where we saw some interesting action on both sides of the car or both sides of the event. But before we do that, I always want to say thank you for taking your time to listen to our show. Please like and share our content across Instagram. Like it on uh, all facets of social media. Excuse me. Like us on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at MMA, at MMA Ratings Net. Be sure to catch our content there and as always we appreciate you taking your time to read like share and listen so with that said let's go ahead and get into the conversation about the sport of MMA first and foremost you know we always want to start with the news topics of the week and we got quite a bit to talk about because it, it's, it's been quiet this week, but that doesn't mean some things still have not occurred. Um, today, was it today? I think it was this morning. We got some pretty big um, we got some pretty big uh, Schwann, you there? Yes, sir. How you doing, man? Do me a favor, turn your volume down just a little bit for me on your end. Okay. There we go. So I make sure I don't want to hear the echo. But um, you joined in right on time because we were just getting started. So thank you for doing so. How are you doing there, sir? Uh, not too bad at all, man. Another day. Just trying to keep it going. I mean, I definitely know the truth about that. Um, you joined us right on time because we just started talking about news from this week. And I wanted to start with today being some very big fights announced with uh, Dominic Cruz and Jimmy Rivera being announced for UFC 219 and Cynthia Calvillo facing Carla Esparza. Now, I have my own opinions on both of those fights, but I just wanted to hear what you had to say about them and your first impressions of these two very big, I think very important fights for both divisions. Well, uh, in regards to Calvillo versus Esparza, it's the UFC, every day the UFC starts acting more and more like boxing. From the new weight divisions they're proposing to fights like this. In boxing, what you do when you have a prospect who has a little, who has some burn and sh showing some talent and has kind of a following, you put him in with a former champion who's faded, maybe lost a step or two, and has is basically going to be outclassed. And you use that name to build your uh, your prospect because you can say, oh, my prospect beat the former strawweight champion, the former Invictus strawweight champion. 
and that's all they're doing with Esparza. I think this is a really, really bad matchup for Esparza. Cavillo should be the better wrestler. She's definitely the better grappler. She's she's the better striker just because she's more willing, and she's willing and able to throw a broader range of strikes, and she's just a better athlete than Esparza. This is like just the worst case scenario for Esparza as far as matchups for fights go. And they're just doing it to basically build Cavillo, give her a showcase fight where she can put on an exciting dominant performance and hopefully push her towards a top five ranking or maybe a title shot in another fight or two. Um, when I heard of this fight, you know, I was, I, I'm not gonna say I feel bad for Esparza, but this is a dangerous fight for her because even with her game plan of taking opponents down and grinding them out, that puts her in a dangerous spot with Cynthia, period. Um, she's shown that she has good jujitsu, good aggressive jujitsu, too. That's the thing when you're facing a wrestler. If you're aggressive off of the, off of your back and aggressive with scrambling, you really can put them in some bad positions, especially with the way uh, Esparza wrestles. So I am really concerned about her in this fight here, too, because along with that, Cynthia's aggressive on their feet as well, too. And we've seen that Esparza struggles with fighters who get right in her face, right from the gate, and aren't afraid of her trying to take them down. So, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is a fight to showcase Cynthia and really get her into the um, the title picture to start off 2018. Yeah, I, I can't. I don't feel too bad for Esparza because she's the one complaining about how I'm broke, I can't get any fights. And since she said that, she's been pretty active. It's just this isn't a fight that, as you said before, it doesn't really match up very well for her. And and since you you're an experienced grappler, my my opinion on Cavillo is a lot of reason her aggressive jujitsu from the back works is because she has that wrestling base that even if she gets in a bad position, she can create a scramble that can get her they can get her out of it and either work for a submission or go for control. Am I reading that wrong, or is that the way you would see it from the grappler? Um, because most grapplers don't have that heavy wrestling background and. She has got a heavy background, and she she's at a camp notoriously built around you know lighter weight wrestlers. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think it's going to play into uh, this case here. I think she's going. I think Esparza is going to have a hard time getting a takedown if she does. Um, but I mean, to be honest with you, I don't even see her taking uh, Cynthia down. I yeah, think she's going to be making attempts at it, and she may press her, press her, press her up against the cage. But I think she's not going to be able to get the the takedowns the way she's used to. You, you know, one thing I've actually thought about in regards to Esparza because the strawweight division, kind of like in a short period of time, has made huge jumps leaps forward. Because as you know, the people who were dominating the division weren't in the tough house like Joanna, Claudia Gadelia, Jessica Andrade. Uh, some of the other girls out there, Casey, Courtney Casey, some of the some of these other Cavillo, none of these women were involved in the Ultimate Fighter to develop to determine who was going to be the champion, and it seems like that was almost a whole era ago because at that point, Carla Sparza was the alpha, alpha, alpha female. Her wrestling, her combination of ground control and ability to ground and pound and look for submission was pretty much unmatched. She essentially went through the whole tournament and the final untouched. And within like what a year and a half, two years, not only did she get dominated by the champion, but even against fighters who are on the fringe of the top ten, like twelve or thirteen, even those fighters, even when she wins, she's not able to finish. She's not able to get clean takedowns. Even when she gets takedowns, she's not able to keep anybody down. It seems like in the in the span of a year or two, she's been totally left behind. Kind of like uh, when Forrest Griffin said, at one point, all you, you just had to have some skills and be tough to compete in in, in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. 
now you have to be a certain level of athlete. And it seems like within a year, year and a half, two years, it went from Carlos Sparza being the chief example of what skills, a smart game plan, and pressure could do for you to someone who's been basically outmoded in that time frame. It's like she, I can't think of anybody in the top 10 who wouldn't give her a lot of trouble. And I can't really think of anybody in the top 15 who wouldn't give her a lot of trouble, if not beat her on any given day. So, if you were Esparza's coach, what would, how, what would you do to get her prepared for this fight? If I'm Esparza's coach, I, I guess basically I, I try, I'm, I'm going to try and um, be it, try to put deliberate pressure. Basically, um, when Cavillo fought Pearl Gonzalez, the fight with Pearl Gonzalez showed me that Cavillo doesn't like pressure. Same thing with the fight with Calderwood. She doesn't like pressure. You can, you can pressure her if you're willing to block or walk in on her shots. She likes to move around. She likes to have free space. Her footwork's not very good, so you can actually press her and back her down into the cage, and you can get takedowns. You can get your hands on her. You can get takedowns on her. You just have to have deliberate pressure, and you have to be willing to walk through a little bit of fire, have a tight guard, walk in, walk in on her, and just press her back. You're going to get hit a little bit. You're going to have to take some shots to the body, but you can pressure her. The thing is, I don't know if Esparza has the mentality to do that because she really responds badly to getting hit, in my opinion. But if she can come behind a, hard, hard, a high guard, work her jab, and cut off the ring, she can pressure Cavillo because Cavillo isn't, isn't a pressure person. She likes to move around, throw punches, move, throw kicks, move, circle around. She likes to kind of flash her athleticism. So she'll give you opportunities to work. You just have to have the physicality and the aggression to constantly press. And she'll just let her throw shots off your guard and then transition into transition off her shots to get to her body, get a takedown. Pearl Gonzalez is not really a top-end wrestler or a top-end athlete, and she got Cavillo down twice and actually had her in position to be finished from a, from a submission with an armbar. But that's, that would be the best bet because our Sparza doesn't have the athleticism to match her move for move or strike for strike. I don't think her, rest, her pure wrestling is good enough to just take her down in the center of the cage. She's going to have to use deliberate pressure, coming behind a jab, and instead of following her, she's got to cut an angle to cut her off, trap her on the cage. Um, I would say transition off a shot inside, try to chop her up to the knees and the body and work a takedown. That would be my best bet for her and the safest bet for her because if she makes it a wide open fight in open space, uh, Calvillo would just outclass her. But there are ways to beat Calvillo. I just don't know that Esparza has the mentality and the aggression necessary to do that. Good analysis there. Good analysis. Um, let's turn our attention to the other fight, which is Dominic Cruz, Jimmy Rivera. I really like this fight, um, and it interests me because you gotta. I gotta be wondering right now, where's Dominic Cruz? Like, what Dominic Cruz are we going to see? And it's kind of the same thing. Jimmy Rivera isn't a up and comer per se, not as much as Cynthia is, but he's someone. He's a he's a new face within the bantamweight division where the same people have been at the top for an extended period of time. What were your thoughts when this fight was announced and uh, what is your early breakdown? I was kind of shocked that Dominic, Dominic took it. I really thought he might try to wait out the winner of Garbrandt Dillashaw and then try, try to make it a title fight. But um, I guess that'd be too much time inactive and he wanted to get back in the fight it, it makes sense for Rivera because Rivera needs a fight over a a guy who's a named guy but a guy who's also in his prime and ranked in the top five to really justify him getting a title shot he's been trying to get one as you notice he's been talking a little bit more in the past couple months 
how he sparred TJ Dillashaw, how he sparred Uri Faber, and he was giving them the business years ago, and he could knock him out right now, and he could knock out Garbrandt right now. So he's been angling to try and get into that title picture because he hasn't had a win over a guy ranked high enough for him to get, for him to have the, I guess, some of the heat to get in there. Um, so it's a great fight for him. For Dominic, I'm kind of like, I mean, any fight with Dominic is going to be good because he knows how to sell a fight and he's a constant presence on all UFC telecasts and pay-per-views now that he's doing announcing, actively announcing fights before and after the fights. So it works for him either way. As far as the matchup, the biggest issue I have with this is Rivera is actually a good fighter as far as game plans. Like when it comes to game plans and like basically what's your initial game plan, if you have a plan A, if you're fighting Jimmy Rivera, he'll have he'll have your he'll have your whole plan A figured out. All your counters, all your leads, all your defenses. He has all the triggers set up so that you throw this, he knows how to counter with this. You counter with this, he knows how to counter that counter with something else. You're using this kind of defense, he's already figured out the holes in the defense and where he needs to go to attack you. The problem with Rivera is he's not very good on the fly. Like if he can get you out of there or put enough damage on you early on that he can basically cruise through the rest of the fight, he's good. But if you're able to hang in there and you start making adjustments, he he doesn't really react very well to that. He's a very, in my opinion, a, a great athlete, good power, very durable, but he's the kind of strategy, scheme kind of guy. And the minute you start getting getting into your plan B or your plan C, that's when he starts having problems because he's focused so well, so much, so heavily on taking away your first line of defense, your first line of offense, your first line of counters, that if you have anything past that, he starts to have problems adjusting, finding his leads, finding his counters, cutting the cage off you, applying his physicality in any sort of efficient manner. And then that's when he starts, he starts losing control of the fight. And as he loses control of the fight, he starts working harder. As he starts working harder, he starts gassing. And as he starts slowing, that's when guys usually take over the fight on him. Now, more times than not, he's actually won the fights, but if you pay attention to his last couple fights, he starts out real hot, and then towards the end of the fight, you see him start slowing a little bit, you see the guy, whoever he's fighting, start landing a couple more counters, start backing him up a little bit, start putting him on the defensive, and he doesn't look like the same guy who came in the cage 10 minutes prior to that last round. And that's been a trend of his I've seen for the past couple years. So the question is, can he get Dominic out of there right away? And if he can't, when, once Dominic makes that adjustment, because Dominic adjusts a little bit quicker than the average person, what is he going to do after that? Because he's, he's going to be prepared for the slips, the dips. He's going to be prepared for the pivots, the fake, the foot fakes, the jabs, the lead hooks, the, the punches into transition for the, the knee tap. He's going to be prepared for all that. But once Dominic starts switching the order or starts changing his whole approach altogether, that's what he's not going to be prepared for. And that's what it's going to take him a little bit more time to adjust to. So if Dominic comes out doing his typical thing, he'll have answers for that. But if Dominic starts pressuring, he won't be ready for that. And then if he starts pressuring back and Dominic makes the adjustment to going back into his defensive shell again, now you got Rivera right where he wants you because he's not good at switching in between game plans. He's good at seeing what you do, taking that apart. You do anything else different, it's really problematic for him. And look at that last fight against Almeida. Dominating that first round, I made him made a couple adjustments, and all of a sudden, Rivera just couldn't get away from punches, could barely land anything. It was essentially getting walked down in a fight that he almost won in the first round by knockout. So, this fight is being made. Um, who you expect to come out on top, and do you expect the winner to immediately be inserted in the bantamweight title picture? I do expect the winner to. If it's Cruz, it's an automatic sell because he has the history with Garbrandt, who beat him. 
or Dillashaw, who he he beat basically coming coming off the couch to beat him for his title. Rivera wins. Rivera beat Cruz, and he'd be only the second guy in division to beat Cruz. So automatically, he's pushing to the title fight. Um, I really, I I want to. I'm just gonna go with Cruz. I really think experience matters. And even though Cruz looked a little shaky against Garbrandt, it's because Garbrandt took an approach that nobody else had taken. He sat he sat back, as I discussed before the show, before they before they fought. He sat he sat back and he countered. He let Dominic come to him. He took he pivoted, got off the angles, and countered heavily. I don't know that Rivera has that kind of skill set. I'm not saying he can't do it in the midst of a fight, but for him to actually just sit back and pick somebody apart, I don't know that he has that kind of discipline. I don't know that he has that kind of shot selection as far as the all-round strikes or the footwork necessary to pull that off i'm more i'm more more than likely think he's going to come out and try to do what he normally does which is put something on put something on his guy and win the fight that way so i'm thinking that cruz's experience and his versatility is going to end up being the difference because the one thing cruz does is he knows how to think on his feet he knows how to make adjustments and he knows how to work through tough spots and that's actually a skill that most even most fighters did most fighters in the UFC don't haven't showcased at a high level, and I think Cruz has it, and I think that's going to be the difference. He'll make some kind of adjustment, and once he does, that's when the fight's going to start turning his way. It just depends on how soon does he make the adjustment. Because so I think this is going to be a three-round fight, if I'm if I recall correctly, which gives it doesn't give him as much time to work. But like I said, I think he should make that adjustment a little bit quicker and be able to turn the fight in his favor. Okay, okay. I always appreciate that breakdown there. Let's talk about another fight that was announced today. Um, it's a fight that was previously booked, but uh, was I can't remember what card it was booked for, but Nganu and Overeem is now back on for UFC 218. And I'm thinking this fight is happening at the right time. Uh, Nganu is surging. Overeem still looks good as a heavyweight. He's 6-1. and one. I think over his last seven fights. Yeah, the should be correct. I think this is the right time to make this fight here because if Ngannou wins, you have someone that you can immediately put in the title picture. If Overeem wins, he's someone that is like a gatekeeper to a title shot. So break down this fight for me here and, and what do you see happening and how do you see this kind of unfolding for the winner and the loser? All right, well, it's probably, I mean, outside the champ being involved, it's probably the best fight they can be made because Ngannou is clearly the best athlete, the most dynamic athlete, and Alistar, if even though he's faded, he'd still be one of the better athletes in all, all heavyweight MMA right now. The reason I think this is a good fight is because Ngannou hasn't really faced any adversity. He he fought Walt Harris. He, he had to go through three rounds. He couldn't just blow through the guy. But Walt Harris doesn't have the experience or the versatility as far as his skill set that could really put Ngannou under duress. Harris was a threat for a takedown. As a heavyweight, he's always a danger to knock somebody out. But he wasn't the better athlete. And Ngannou, being the counter striker that he is, and being such a such a better athlete, such a stronger fighter, all he had to basically do was sit back and defend takedowns and look for counters. And essentially just slowly pick Walt Harris apart. He's not going to have that option against Overeem. Now, the old Overeem would be easy because Overeem would just be trying to press him and walk him down. But this new Overeem, He's got a little bit of footwork. He uses a lot of things. He, kind of, he uses a wider variety of strikes. And he has some poise when he gets rocked or when he gets hurt. He doesn't panic as much. He doesn't just give up. Because in recent fights, you've seen him get dropped by Stipe. He got back up. Turned, he got back up, was in the fight. You've seen him get dropped by 
you saw him get dropped by Wardoom, and the old Overeem would have got dropped, and then they just would have pounced on him. But this guy is showing a little bit of that that veteran seasoning, and he knows how to work through tough spots, and he's willing to put himself in a position that is going to allow him to reverse whatever spot he's in and take over the fight. Um, I don't really know what to say about Ngannou. He seems like he's fast. He seems like he's accurate. Seems like he's got good power. Seems like he's got good form. Seems like his takedown defense is good. But all the stuff we've seen from him has been in fights where he's essentially had every single possible advantage over his opponent. And it's a little bit different when you don't have any true threat of being finished or really being hurt by the guy you're facing. When you you outclass him so much that he doesn't really have anything to offer, I can't really gauge how good your takedown defense is. Because if you're not afraid of someone striking, it's easy to defend takedowns because that's all they got for you. If you're not afraid of some, if you person's got decent striking, but they don't really have any takedowns and they're facing an athlete the caliber of Ngannou, superior technical striker, you're still at risk in any given exchange at any given moment. So that takes away the effectiveness of any wrestling you have, and it takes away the effectiveness of your striking. And most of these guys at heavyweight, they're all they're either old guys who are with very limited skill sets, or they're young guys with very limited skill sets. Overeem is one of the few heavyweight who can actually wrestle, grapple, kickbox, and box. He's got the full skill set. So for once in his life, when is facing somebody and he misses a strike or he overcommits, he's facing a guy who can counter him, a guy who's got the skills to counter him, a guy who's got the athleticism to counter him, and a, a veteran who still has the mindset and the aggression and is willing to pull the trigger to counter him. And that's not something everybody, that's not something that every, every, you every veteran UFC heavyweight can say or any of the young guys can say. And that's what makes this fight exciting. Um, I'd like to go for Overeem, but the simple fact of the matter is Overeem's chin really isn't there as much as it used to be. I mean, he's been dropped a lot. He's been knocked, a lot, knocked out a lot. And the only reason he hasn't been knocked out recently has been the fact that he's been working on his, his footwork, his defense, and tie-ups and clinches so that he's not being punished by guys. But make no mistake, his chin isn't legit at all. The other, the opposite end of that argument is that nobody knows what Ngannou's chin really has. You've seen him wobble by jazz before, but we've never really seen a guy tee off on him. And we don't know how he reacts when he's really getting the wood put to him or he's been in a bad spot. For all we know, he might crack, he might quit. We don't know because he's never been put under any serious pressure. So with that said, even though Overeem basically is one hard shot for being stopped, I'm gonna have to give. I'm gonna lean for Overeem because he is the veteran. He's got the broader skill set. Everybody keeps telling me all the skills that Ngannou has. I haven't seen him, and I definitely haven't seen them under duress. I've seen Overeem against a variety of fighters recent in the recent past, and he's done well. He's he's fought smart. He's fought disciplined. He's used a full array of skills, and he's navigated fights against some of the biggest hitters in division, some of the toughest fighters in division. He's found ways to win. I don't know that Ngannou can find a way to win if the fight's not going his way. I don't know that Ngannou will keep on going if he gets hit and he gets hurt. I don't know what Ngannou's going to do if he's put on his back. I don't know what Ngannou's going to do if he's trapped in a submission. Nobody's seen it. And it's hard for me to bet my... It would be hard for me to bet money or for me to just, from an intellectual perspective, put my faith in somebody when I haven't seen them do anything that requires any sort of conquering of adversity or any sort of cage IQ. So I'm going to go with the veteran because he's proven. And even, even though there's a clear line of vict- a path to victory against him, um, I just can't go against the guy who's, 
who's shown more. I, I just haven't seen enough from Gano for me to be for me to buy in. I know he's a great athlete. I know he hits hard. I know he hits he hits fast. But what else do I know about him? That he has great defense, based off of fighting who? That he's good at submissions, based off of fighting who? That he's a good counter puncher, once again, based off of fighting who? Everything that he's accomplished has been based on him being this bigger, stronger, faster, more dynamic athlete. So I like to see what he can do when he doesn't have as big a gap athletically and when somebody actually has the skills to not just threaten him, but actually do harm to him in a, in a fight. But yeah, as I said, it, it, it's a good matchup. I'm glad they finally made the fight. Um, really, there, there's not too many guys who have the skills or the durability necessary to match up with Ganu. I think it's. Uh, I think Derek Lewis would have been the only other option. And being that he's such a big star and he's such a social media presence, I don't know that the UFC would have been eager to have two guys, two of their younger guys who have a little bit of a cult following knock each other off on the way to a title title shot. Um, being that Overeem's been the last, the most recent, was he the, no, he's the second and most recent um, title challenger, it's a good fight. If he can uh, walk through Overeem, then he, whether he wins in an exciting one-sided manner or he wins in a tough competitive fight, either way, that would be the best win of his career and it would be a win against a guy who's essentially, for the past year and a half, two years, been walking through everybody else in the heavyweight division. So that instantly punches his ticket and shows to people that the hype is real and that he's ready to challenge for a title shot. Now, that's, that, that, that's, that will be if he wins. If he loses, it's not terribly damaging because Overeem is one of the best heavyweights of all time. He is one of the most skilled and most well-rounded heavyweights of all time, and, and he's one of the best athletic heavyweights of all time. So losing to him, even at this stage, isn't isn't something to be ashamed of. It isn't something to be embarrassed of, because Overeem's given many of the the elite heavyweights of past and present defeats on their record, or if nothing else, hard-earned. They had to have hard-earned victories over him. So him losing, so losing to Overeem is is no shame. The biggest question I have for either fighter is with the contract negotiations going on with Stipe, even if either guy wins, I don't know what that means as far as their potent, as far as their next move. If Oreem or Ngannou win, they're essentially next up for a title fight for the champions in contract negotiations, which means that they're going to have to sit out for an extended period of time to wait to see when or if Stipe comes back and um, how long, then once he comes back and signs the contract, how much longer do you have to wait before he's prepared to defend the title? What sucked is I said some really insightful shit right there a second ago, but I realized my, my um, mic was still muted. But what I said was that it surprises me that you're picking um, over him. I expect, I expect the, the picks to come in, to, um, come in on, what's his name? Ngannou's side. Uh, yeah, I, I expect a lot of the picks to come in on that side, especially with seeing how um, Overeem has been stopped as of late. But it's interesting to see that you decided to go with um, Overeem here at this point in time. I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see how this fight does, does, does break out. 
if you think about it, he hasn't been stopped by guys who are just pushovers. I mean, when he got stopped by Travis Brown, Travis Brown was still one of the best heavyweights in the world. When he got stopped by Ben Rothwell, Ben Rothwell was still one of the best heavyweights in the world. And even in getting stopped against those guys, he had extended moments of success. He was he was out slicking Rothwell and pot shotting him. When he fought Travis Brown, he dropped Travis Brown. He had him close to being finished when he fought Travis when he fought Travis Brown. And even in his loss against Stipey, he put Stipey on his butt and had him in danger with a submission. So in no fight, even in the fights that he's been stopped in, he hasn't just been outclassed. He hasn't just been walked over. And when he got KO'd, it wasn't by just light light taps. It was guys putting a lot of heat on him, and that's what stopped him. But at least we know that up until a certain point, he was able to handle the punishment. He was able to either defend and get away from it, or he was able to straight up take it before he eventually capitulated. It wasn't like just a flash knockout, like one big shot. It was like a series of really hard shots from guys who were known as finishers in the division. I would like to go with Ngannou because Ngannou is a superior athlete and he's shown such a devastating ability to finish, but you have to look at who he's been finishing against. It's almost like the Derek Lewis thing, where Derek Lewis has all these wins by KO, but these wins by KO are, are over faded veterans or guys who were never who, who weren't all that big. And even in those wins, it's not like he just he just out and out blew these guys away. It was a bit of a struggle. Now Ngannou's been more impressive, but once again, you compare his his last four opponents to Overeem's last four opponents, it's not even a close if, in, as far as experience, skill level, um, savvy, or physical ability. It's not even close. And in the UFC, this isn't boxing. You can't duck around guys. So Ngannou could have been faced, could have been, could have been matched with tougher guys. For some reason, he hasn't been. So I, I can't, I can't intellectually make the leap of going just for the guy just because I've seen him knock out second and third tier heavyweights. Overeem isn't a second and third tier heavyweight. He's still a first tier heavyweight. I've got to see Ngannou do the same thing he's done to somebody who can fight back, somebody who can get away from what he does, and somebody who can do damage to him. Once I see that, we can have that conversation. But until then, I just can't go with a guy who's so unproven. Yeah, I, I see the athleticism, but I don't know what he does when somebody cracks him back. I don't know what he does when he comes in on the counter and the guy counters that with a takedown and puts him on his back and starts, and starts dropping ground and pound on him. Or somebody gets him in a tight submission hole. We have no idea what he'll do. I mean, remember at one point Ronda Rousey was unstoppable until she wasn't. George St. Pierre was unstoppable until someone punched him in the face. True, we shall see what happens. Um, so I also wanted to... I wanted to touch on one other interesting story I found this morning or this afternoon. It was about Lauren Murphy. Did you see this information about her and Eddie Alvarez? Um, I heard there was some kind of issue between them. Yeah, it seems to be uh, legit. Lauren Murphy is basically, she's pissed at Eddie Alvarez for, um, uh, how can I... How can I put this in the words? So on Tough this season, you know, Eddie Alvarez is her coach. Lauren Murphy got lost in the first round. Yes. And she said that she didn't show up for practice the next morning because she was feeling really down. And Eddie has some choice words to say about her at, at that situation. So Lauren um, felt some type of way about it. But I guess it kind of escalated from there because she was surprised that Eddie didn't tell her how he felt to her face. So it's pretty interesting to see this here because, A, this doesn't surprise me, you know, from the, the short time that I actually did get to train with Eddie and those guys when I lived in New Jersey. You know, he's very, he's an old school, hard nose, 
you know, get your butt on the mat regardless of what's going on type of coach. Which doesn't, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Um, and Lauren even said that she goes as far as to feel envious of the women on Justin Gacy's team because, you know, they get rest days and they're able to kind of monitor themselves. Um, I don't want to get... I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to say sexist here or anything like that, but listening to what she's saying about how emotional she was um, after losing that fight and reading the piece on MMA fighting about the situation, they use the word emotional like five or six times. Is this being, I think this has the, has the potential of being painted wrong because she's a woman and he's a male coach. Um, and it being blown out of proportion in some type of way. I haven't seen the footage. I don't watch tough. I'm interested in going to see this, just this footage itself. But what are your thoughts on, on, on this situation here? Is this something that should be looked at? Um, or is it just more reality TV for reality TV's sake? Well, I have a couple thoughts. The first thought is she said she was jealous she wasn't on Justin Gaethje's team, correct? Yes. Well, Justin Gaethje, if you if you watch the show, which you, you don't, so if you watch the show, Justin Gaethje said he ran people through skills, a little bit of sparring, a little bit of grappling, and then he had everybody sit down with him and his coach, and they interviewed them, and I think they might have had a psychologist too, I'm not quite sure, but they interviewed them to see where their head was at, if they were 100% committed, if they were mentally stable and strong enough to be in a very pressure-filled situation on top of, of fighting, professionally, on top of a pressure-filled situation, of being on national TV and being recorded nonstop and not being with your normal camp, not being around your family, not having those safety nets and safety valves to release pressure or catch you when you fall, when you have a bad performance, a bad day of training or whatever else might go on. So based off of Justin Gaethje's own assessments, based off what I've seen, unless they switch things around, he picked the people he felt had the best minds, the best personalities, the best um, temperament towards fighting and fighting successfully in this specific instance. So as much as she may feel jealous of the girls on Gaethje's team, based off of what Tuff has shown us, she didn't pass the, the necessary requirement for him to pick her because a lot of what he picked was based off of a mentality, a personality, a vibe, and how they carried themselves and how he thought they would carry themselves moving forward in the competition. Secondly, this, this really does have a chance of getting out of hand as far as how it, how it, how it paints Eddie Alvarez. But it's because some people were going to say he's picking on her. He's bullying her. He's not understanding of how to coach women. He's not understanding of how to support women. And they talked about this on Tough Talk yesterday. And I'm going to highlight a point that um, Michael Bisping said himself. If it's about everybody being treated equal and being fair then and you want you want to be treated fair and get the same money and all that kind of stuff he didn't say this is the part i'm saying you know everybody wants to we're just as good as men or better we should get paid as just as good as men or better we want to compete in the same sport we want to have the same opportunities then once you start getting into a situation where you're requesting somebody make an exception on your behalf that becomes problematic and i don't mean problematic in that that you can't prefer a certain kind of coach you can but when you go on tough you have one or two choices and the fact that matters, you don't get to choose your choice, your your coach. You get whoever picks you. And Tuff has had a history of shows where guys have said, such and such isn't a very good coach. Such and such didn't give me enough attention. Such and such didn't talk to me the way I wanted to. Such and such didn't act in a way that was professional for a coach. 
We heard men say that about Rampage and Rush Rashad. We heard people say that about Cody Garbron, about Ken Shamrock. We had people who had issues with Matt Sarah's coaching. We had people who had issues with Matt Hughes's coaching. We had people who had issues all the way around. There is nothing new about that. That's that's really how it goes because you didn't pick this coach. You don't like. You might not like their coaching style. You might not like how they talk to people. You might not not like their points of emphasis as far as their philosophy and their strategy. But you don't have any control over that. You have to deal with the cards that dealt you, and that's essentially what happened. It's nothing more. It's really no different because every if you look at every season, somebody has a problem with the way they were coached. Oh, he made me fight first. Oh, he made me fight last. He picked me twelfth. He put me in this position. His game plan was stupid. He, I don't respect him as a fight. I don't respect him as a fighter. He doesn't know how to coach. If anybody who's seen an episode of Tough knows that that happens, that happens every season, every single season that happens. It never fails. Doesn't matter what kind of coaching staff they bring in. Doesn't matter who the fighter is. Somebody is, feels disrespected or unappreciated or abused by a coach in the way they're training. Think about Conor McGregor when that guy lost and he said, get off your effing back. And he tore that guy a new one, you know, and he was saying how the guy quit, the guy wasn't meant for this, the guy had this is this, he shouldn't be involved in it. You know, I mean, that happens. That's, that's a regular occurrence that happens. And that's why not every coach is for every, every fighter, not every fighter is for every coach. I don't really think it's that big a deal. She didn't like how Eddie handled things. Uh, that's normal. That's that's in business. That's in that's in um, other coaching sports. That's in that's in fighting. That's no different. Anybody who pays attention to other sports knows this is a common a common occurrence in football. I'm sure Cam Newton doesn't always agree with his offensive coordinator. I coach girls basketball. There's coaches the girls on the team who hate me because I keep telling them to play a different way than the way they like to play. There are other coach coaches though. That's just normal, and I don't think it should be made into a big deal. But depending on how Lauren Murphy frames this it could become a big deal. That being said, there were other girls on the show who said they liked Eddie Alvarez. They like to be talked to. They like to be given it straight. They like, they don't want punches pulled. They don't want no, they don't want back massages. They don't want comforting. They want to be told what it is. They want to be told what his opinion is and they want to be told straight up and they like it that way. Maybe Lauren Murphy isn't one of those people who likes it that way. That's not a matter of sexism. That's a personal preference and we all have them. I, I, I don't. I don't think it is a big deal, but I can see how it could be turned into a big deal, depending on how it's framed. And my last point is, if Lauren Murphy wins her fight, do we ever get to find out about this issue she has with Eddie Alvarez? Because the people who win very rarely say I don't like my coach and they didn't handle me right and I didn't like how they talked to me. Because if you win, then it's like he pushed me, he called it straight, he cracked the whip on me, and I had to perform. When you lose they weren't very understanding they were too aggressive they were too harsh on me and that's just me speaking from the outside looking in i don't have any inside information on what's going on but just from the outside looking in in any sports venture this happens quite often there's rarely any sport you've been in or any sport you're going to be connected to where everybody's on the same page as one of the coaches it's just in this instance you're stuck with this coach because that's the that's the terms of the of the show that you came on. So you're stuck dealing with the person you have to deal with. And if you don't like it, you still have to tough it out for the next what six eight weeks until the show's over. I, I have one question: Did she tell? Did she express these points to Eddie Alvarez, or did she express them to the media? Well, that's the thing. She says in her interview that she spoke to Eddie first before the interview aired, so he wouldn't be surprised. What's pissing her off so much is that he didn't do the same to her when um, he had a problem with her. Did he, ha did he have a problem with her or was he just stating a fact? 
he was saying that her that she doing that brought down the morale of the team and that's what pissed her off so much well i mean i understand that but does, does that mean he has a problem with her because she had an actual problem with how he talked to her how he treated her and how he came off she had a problem with that so what he's saying he's making a statement that's like if, if I tell a girl, you shoot too much, and she's like, well, I have a problem. I don't like how you coach. You, you don't let me shoot enough. I'm saying you shoot too much. To me, that's just, I'm just making a statement. You shoot too much. You have a problem with me. You're saying I don't let you shoot enough. So you have a problem with the way I run an offense. I don't have a problem with my, I don't have a problem. I'm just stating the fact. You shoot too much. He's stating the fact. He felt it brought down the morale. That's not a problem with, that's not a problem with her. That's stating a fact. He felt she brought the morale of the team down. I don't. I don't know that that's actually a problem. That's just you observe something. That's your opinion. That's what you felt. Now I can understand him not. I can understand her being at mad because he didn't tell her that. But I mean, in a certain instance, you know, people are entitled to their opinion. So what if he said that? Well, really, how can you adjust that? If he, if I think you're bringing the morale down, where's that argument? To my, in my opinion, where's that argument going to go? Good analysis there. Good analysis there. So I thought it was a very interesting story, um, breaking down between the two. So I want to cover some of the action from this weekend. What do you want to start with, Bellator or UFC? Um, we can start with Bellator. Oh, before we get into this, let me say before, because once again, things can be framed. I don't, I don't dislike Lauren Murphy. I actually think she's very intelligent. I don't know why they don't have her working as an analyst. Like They have a lot of active fighters working behind the desk or working, calling fights. She, when I saw her on Tough Talk, she was very measured. She communicated excellently. She made a point. She had an interesting story, and she was able to break down her own fight and what was a very emotional loss, and break it down in a very technical and strategical manner, covering both bases. Thing what she did wrong technically, what adjustments that girl made strategically that threw her off, how she had prepared. She was very concise in what she was saying. So I thought she was excellent. I put on Twitter they need to put her on a desk, even if she's a current fighter. They need to get people like more people like that, more women, getting more run as far as being personalities and getting to showcase other aspects of their skill set. In her case, it'd be talking about fights, breaking down fights, and assessing fights. But, I, I, and once I said, I'm speaking from the outside looking in. I, I, like her as a, I like her as a fighter. I like her. I would love her as an announcer, but I, I don't necessarily see the issue. To me, it's just a matter of preference. And if you want to say that he didn't tell her the problem, okay, you can say that. But once again, that doesn't come down to a sex issue. That's just a personal preference issue. If I'm in a situation similar, and two ways I've been is that as close to that as possible, it doesn't bother me. Because people can say what they want to say, they can have their opinion, they have the right to have their opinion. I'd rather not know the negative stuff unless you're saying something that's going to make our, make the situation better. We don't need to have a conversation any further. So I'm not, a, I'm not trying to bash her, but just from my perspective, I don't see why it's being made into such a big deal when literally every single year someone has a complaint about their coach. That, that goes without fail. That happens every year, and it happens in every sport, and it happens in every aspect of life somebody has a problem with somebody who has authority over them with the way they run things that's just normal good thoughts there good thoughts there but um let's start with bellator first and 183 was an interesting card i wrote about this for ratings this week where we saw two ufc competitors go um lose about another one in roy nelson but before we jump into the fight card itself let's talk about the jump from bellator to um excuse me from the ufc to bellator there was a time where you thought that anyone coming from the octagon to the six-sided cage would be considered a title contender and would be thrown in right at the top of the heap 
we're past that part now. We're past that point now where, you know, we see Vincent Henderson and Lorenz Larkin have a combined one and five record. They could easily be 0 and 6 if you look at that one fight that Henderson won. Um, who else? Is, Roy McDonald looked great coming over. Roy Nelson had a, had a, had a good fight. Um, yeah, Ryan Bader's a champion there. Um, he defeated Phil Davis in probably their weakest division. Um, what are you, Phil Davis was a UFC uh, refugee too. So yeah, yeah, definitely there. So you definitely have that, and that and that, and that was a rematch. So it, it was a victory that we saw um, go down before as well. What are your thoughts on this? And even Josh Thompson as well. Josh Thompson came in one two, and then he got badly stopped in his, in his last fight. Are we reaching a point where Bellator's fighters are beginning to step up to the plate, or is Bellator signing fighters at the right time? Are they signing the wrong fighters at the right time? Meaning that they're signing fighters like Henderson and Larkin to where their fighters can get big wins and look good from them, or are they paying top dollar for fighters that can't, who aren't who they once were when they were in the octagon? Well, first of all, Bellator has had this happen before, too. I mean, UFC's had it because, you know, the Hector Lombard experiment hasn't exact, exactly panned out. He was one of the best fighters in Bellator. So we, we've, seen the, we've seen the opposite happen as well. Um, secondly, I was never the person who believed that Bellator had a huge gap between um, them and the UFC. The only gap they have is the UFC has more depth and talent. And every time we talk Bellator, I say the same thing. Bellator's top three, now I guess it's top five guys are all good enough to compete with the UFC based off of skill set, physical tools, quality of competition, and activity. That, that's been the case in Bellator for quite a while now. I mean, Eddie Alvarez was in Bellator. He's also a guy who came with the UFC, lost his first fight. Will Brooks came with the UFC, lost his fight too. So we can't actually act like this is something new. The thing about it is everybody treated Bellator as a second tier organization, but that's only when you look at it when you look at it from a very elitist point of view. That's if you assume that the UFC has the best fighters just because they have UFC in front of fighter. And I've never been one of those people who's thought that because, I mean, just the nature of what I do when I write and what I do on the side with fighters is looking at people's actual fight games, looking at their strategies, looking at their techniques, looking at their counters, looking at their game B, their plan B, their plan C, their cage IQ, their durability. I look at all that. So when I looked at the top guys in each division, I didn't see a huge gap. I didn't see guys in Bellator who couldn't come over to the UFC and at least put a couple wins together. I didn't see anything like that. So to me, this isn't, this isn't much of a shock. And in, in all the fights that um, Vincent Henderson has lost, he came in at welterweight fighting a guy who could probably be top 10, top 7 welterweight in the UFC. Now true, Vincent Henderson was on a winning streak in the UFC in welterweight, but who did he beat? Brandon Thatch? He beat Brandon Thatch. He beat Jorge Mas Masvidal, which is a good win, but Jorge Masvidal isn't a top five welterweight. He's still trying to get into that point. When he faced the top five welterweight, he was summarily beaten pretty decisively. I mean, it was a close fight, but it was still decisive. But the guys that Vincent Henderson beating, were beating, Korshkov would have beat them too. Lima would have beat them too, because Lima and Korshkov are elite welterweights. In the case of Lorenz, Lorenz Larkin, uh, we talked about him before the fight. He's a great offensive fighter, great speed, great athleticism, great explosiveness, great offensive capabilities and creativity. 
But the simple fact of the matter is Lorenz Larkin has been, he's a different guy once he gets hurt, and he's a guy that once he gets hurt, he's not hard to finish. We said that on, I said that on the show last week. I said on Twitter before the fight happened. And what happened? He was outclassing Daly. He was putting it to Daly. And Daly landed the one shot, which he's always a threat to do with somebody who's going who's gonna to stand and extend exchanges with him. He landed it. It stunned Larkin, and then he closed the show. If you're going to fight Daly, you have to fight a pitch-perfect, defensively sound fight, or you have to be durable enough to take what he has to offer you. Larkin wasn't trying to take him down. He was trying to strike with him. Larkin's never, Larkin's never been a super slick, efficient, defensive fighter. He looks like it because he's so dynamic and he's so athletic, but he's really not that good a defensive fighter. And he got caught, and he got finished. That was a fight that that was that was a possibility that anybody with common sense could have seen coming. No, nobody was a hundred percent on Lorenz Larkin winning that fight. There wasn't anybody who knows what they're talking about who was a hundred percent on Lorenz Larkin walking through Paul Daly. It, there's nobody who thought that. So when you look at the actual matchups and the skill sets, all these fights are capable. All these fights were fights that could have been won or lost, won or lost either way. So it, it shouldn't be much of a shock if you're a real fan of mixed martial arts. Now, if you're a UFC fan. And this is this is this is a shock to you. But if you're a mixed martial arts fan, then you understand the gap between the top three to five guys in each division is not big. It is not big at all. I got an interesting question for you before we um, dive deeper into this whole fight card. I don't know how many fights he has left on his contract, but if you're sitting in um, WME IMG offices and you see that Paul Daly is a free agent, do you try to sign him? I don't think so. I mean, not not the way the UFC is built up. No, I mean all the guys in their top welterweight of uh, Usman, Covington, Woodley, Maya. I mean all these guys. Even even a cowboy isn't isn't necessarily elite. But even he even he when he gets raw, he'll shoot for takedowns. They get too many guys who are very good grapplers, very good ground and pound, very good wrestlers. In in um. In Bellator, they have guys who are willing to try him in his area of strength more and aren't really so quick to go for takedowns. Um, Lima and Larkin were able to exchange with were able to exchange with him. Lima won, Larkin got KO'd. Roy McDonald didn't even really mess with it. He did enough to get into range, took him down, and, and wiped the floor with him. And Roy McDonald isn't one of the mo- most dynamic athletes or one of the most dynamic wrestlers out there. There's tons of guys in the UFC who could, who could take Daly down and work him over. There's tons of guys who are basically in- improvements on Josh Koscheck. And you saw what Koscheck did to him years ago. Daly hasn't improved that much. It was just a very good matchup. That's the thing. That's the key point there. Would you sign him and put him in matchups that are favorable just to have him there? Put him in a fight he's not, with. He's not a big enough star. He he doesn't. He he's not some kind of huge rating. In fact, nobody in Bellator who's their top guys, with exception of maybe Rampage, if he if he's even still there. King Mo draws a little draws some. He's he's one of the bigger names. They don't have a lot of big names. The UFC bringing Paul Daly back might be MMA news, but it's not crossover mainstream media news. That's not going to get them a hundred thousand in pay per views or another point or half a point in ratings he doesn't move the needle he i just, mean they did almost draw um a million viewers for the fight this weekend yeah, which is I better think, numbers than the ufc events have done in the last two quarters on, on i Fox. think it's because the ufc's japan card didn't have any names that were or saitama had any names that peep the casual fans the casual fans recognize all the and even the good people who think they're hardcores didn't really recognize them 
it was like a it, it was a night full of good fights, but they weren't important fights, and that's why I didn't get any attention. I mean, Bellator had got all guys you know, people know Benson Henderson, people know the Pitbulls. They fight on Bellator every year, four or five times a year. You know Lorenz Larkin, you know Paul Daly, you know Roy Nelson. So it's a bunch. It, Aaron Pico was on the card for Christ's sake. You know, I mean, like a guy, guys who've been regularly getting huge amounts of coverage, either for leaving the UFC or Pico in this case for taking his second venture into MMA. So I mean, I expected that card to get more. It was a better card. It had bigger names, and it had more. It had guys who were more familiar to mainstream guys and to hardcore fans. There was no way that card wasn't gonna gonna draw a better number. But I don't, I don't think Paul Daly had a whole hell of a lot to do with it. You know, Paul Daly asked me for more money based off of these imaginary ratings. I tell Paul he can he can go to UFC because you're not generating the ratings. Some interesting thoughts there, man. Uh, good um, feedback. Good feedback. Let's talk about this event. Some more credit than I'll give Paul Daly. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're gonna talk about Roy Roy Nelson in a second, but let's focus on this main event first and foremost. Um. Tricky Fier gets a split decision win over um, Vincent Henderson. What were your thoughts on this? Were you surprised? Um, has is Vincent Henderson's split decision wins finally catching up with them? What were your thoughts look after this main event? Well, actually, like uh, there's a good friend of mine, uh, another MMA analyst, striking striking specialist analyst, who works with a, a just ton of fighters. You can't imagine the kind of guys he gets to work with. Uh, Cejudo, he's done some work with the Pitbulls. My good friend, uh, Connor Rebush, Heavy Hands Podcast. He he and I have always had this discussion about Vincent Henderson because he did this article on Vincent Henderson and it's called The Art of Bullshit. And it's kind of what Floyd Mayweather does. When Vincent fights, he does things that make it seem like whatever you're doing aren't bothering him. You might land a kick, but instead of him like reacting to it, he kind of brushes the hair out of his face. He just seems so chill, so composed, so composed and so calm that even when you're getting offense off or you're pressuring him, it looks like he's under control. It looks like he's dictating the terms of fight. There's two reasons. One is composure, and two, Benson is best when he fights backing up. He backs up. He doesn't let you push him back. He'll back up, let you come forward, and he likes to counter heavily. Throw that straight right to the body, throw the body kicks, uh, throw that awkward jab he has, or, or bait you to come in to get a takedown. And then he either gets you down or he controls you against the fence and gets points for essentially shutting your offense down and controlling you or for taking you down and landing some not it's not really damaging but damaging looking ground and pound and submission attempts it, he his style plays to the judges in a certain instance because no matter whether you win or lose Benson Henderson always does just enough to put a question in your mind that he may have won the fight he always makes it competitive enough where nobody can just say oh well I just dominated him win or lose he's ne- never in a position where He's just clearly and obviously defeated. And that's the line he kind of tiptoes on. The thing about that line is it's a very dangerous one because the same fight that, that you win one year because of your little bit of control in your activity or controlling the pace is the same fight you lose the next year because of somebody's aggression and their willingness to throw more volume than you. It's sim- He's basically started the, the fight style that Tyron Woodley has now perfected. And I would use that fight against um, Damian Maya as a chief example of that. That fight could have gone either way because Maya was pressing, Maya was throwing more, he was attempting like 20-something takedowns. He's, he's essentially making the fight 
and Woodley was not making him pay with counters off of every time he attempted a takedown or every time he threw a strike. He wasn't countering consistently or aggressively. He was picking his spots. Now that we, we know now because he was injured, but he was picking his spots. And it could have been easy for a judge to say, this guy's backing up. This guy's against the cage. This guy's pressing. This guy's throwing the more punches. This guy's landing more punches. This guy's attempting more takedowns. He's the one winning the fight. It's easy. A judge could have easily made that. And Tyron Woodley could have lost, and he would have been like, he didn't do anything to me. He didn't take me down. I landed the heavier shots. And he would have had, a, he would have had an argument. But when you play with the judges' cards like that, you're always going to be one step from winning, one step from losing, because you're basically leaving the fight up to interpretation. That's what Vincent Henderson does. And fortunately for him, he'd always ended up on the winner side of that because guys wouldn't, they wouldn't ramp up the volume. They wouldn't do the aggression because they were afraid of getting taken down or controlled or whatever. As of yet, um, guys haven't been afraid of that. Against Korshkov, the fight wasn't even close. That wasn't even a question. But against Chandler, um, even though Chandler started off hot, eventually Chandler stopped being able to do the things he wanted to do. He was less effective in the last round than he was in the first round. And that gave the perception that Henderson was taking over. And the, the, the thing that's been hurting Henderson now is now he's just not getting the call. He's been winning 50-50 fights, and he had a five-year streak where the fight, the coin always landed on his side, and now he seems to be on a two-year streak where the coin seems to land, land on the side of his opponent. And he's not doing anything wrong. I can't even say he's fighting bad fights. Um, it's just the judges aren't favoring what he's doing now. I don't know if they just, the, new, the judges don't appreciate it. I don't know if they've caught on to it. I don't know if they just favor a guy who's, who's seemingly more aggressive. But whatever it is, it's starting not to go his way. So let's um let's keep going there because I wanted to talk about the idea of like what's next for Henderson. You know, where do you put him in this division? Like, do you um do you keep him at the top there? Do you because what do you do with free? Yeah, I feel like this division is so kind of weird with Michael Chandler, especially him not being the champion now. What do you do do with this group? Personally, unfortunately, I keep saying this. The fact that the fact that Bellator is so shallow as far as like even recognizable names forces guys to take fights with other guys when they probably need a fight with a lesser opponent to kind of build themselves up. When Josh Thompson came in, they gave Josh Thompson some fairly style favorable fights for him, and he won them decisively before they moved him up. They got him on a win streak. Then they put him in with a guy. They put him in with a with a name guy, and that's when that's when he lost. But they had him. They they got him kind of used to Bellator. They got they tried they trotted him out a couple times. Got the fans behind him, and then they moved him up a level. And I don't know if it's a matter of what Bellator's asking for or what Benson Henderson's asking for, but the fact of the matter is they don't have any guys with any name recognition who are in the lower half of the top ten or in the top fifteen in Bellator who they could put him up against. Guys who have enough experience skill or enough name recognition to make it worth the money they're paying Benson Henderson to fight. So Benson Henderson is instantly thrown in from one champion to another champion to a former champion. That, that's all he's fought since he's been in Bellator. Champions, former champions, and current, cha- current champions, and former champions. That's all he's fought. He hasn't fought in one guy who would be in the top 10 to 15 range of Bellator. It's all been top five guys. In most cases, the number one guy in the division or the number two guy in the division. So even though he's been losing, he hasn't been getting blown out. He hasn't been dominated, but he's, he's, he's only been fighting the best. And when you fight the best, 
nobody goes, nobody's numbers against the best are always flawless. And in this case, his numbers aren't either. I just don't know what they do with them because who else can you put him in with? Maybe a David Rickles. If Rickles wins his next fight, a fight with Vincent Henderson would be the biggest name he's ever faced. And Rickles should be a guy that Henderson can outclass. And, uh, Rickles is moving to welterweight. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Another guy. Another guy done. They, they just don't have many options in any division. Once you get past that first three or four, three to five guys, you got nothing. You got no names. You got nobody with enough skill or experience that you can put in with a name guy and have it actually draw and have it actually make sense. So they're trapped by their own model of, ha- of not having enough depth in any division. That's why you have hmm. Strauss versus Pitbull or four times and Strauss versus Karan three times in two years. There's no, re- there's no reason for fights to happen that often, even a competitive fight. But when you don't have anybody else to match up against your names and against your elite guys, what do you do? Even even a Lorenz Larkin. First he goes in first fight is against a champion. Second fight is against a guy who challenged for the bet who was like uh, ranked number three in the division. I mean, there's not even a chance to acclimate. All they do is throw you in with their best guy. Best guy, best guy, best guy, best guy. Because they don't have anybody else to put you in with to, to acclimate you and build you up before they have you take the next step forward. Some good thoughts there, man. I always wonder, like, Bellator is in an awkward place. You know, they have guys, but then they don't have guys. They have guys, but they, then they don't have guys. So it, it's pretty interesting to see, like, kind of how they continue to build people up. And, and talking it's about like building... An all-pro quarterback and no backup, and you have nobody to back him up. And then he gets injured, and you're like, well, what are we supposed to do now? Well, we didn't expect him to get injured. How do you not plan for that, you know? Yeah, definitely for sure there, man. How do you not plan for that? Um, as you talk about building up names, man, Aaron Pico with a crazy knockout. I mean, it. the sound alone was like nuts. But the way old boy fell over was just made it even perfect. Um, break down what you saw here. Is this is this the real Aaron Pico? Like, uh, will the real Aaron Pico please stand up? Is this him or are we or was it like a one time one time deal? I think both fights were him. I think it's somewhere in between. I don't think he's he's the flame out and the guy with no chin that we that, that people called him when he lost his first fight. I don't know that he's the absolute destroy, destroyer that he showed in the second fight. I think the truth is somewhere in between. He's a very he's a guy skilled in multiple combat disciplines. He's a world class athlete and he's a guy who's finding his legs and finding his style and finding what works for best for him in a brand new sport. Even with all that experience, there, there's a learning curve in any sport. Nobody just comes in from any combat sport and just comes in and dominates. I mean, I guess Ronda Rousey would be the exception, but given how shallow her division was, that partially explained it. Everybody else has, everybody has some growing pains. The, uh, the biggest issue I have with him is like the, the guy he faced this, this fight was another guy who's more experienced, a guy who was a proven, a guy with a winning record, uh, and this time he came out on top. I was impressed by his aggression. He came out a lot more aggressive this time. He seemed a little bit more clear on what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. He got a little wild with his uh, strikes when uh, early in the first round. It seemed like he was forcing exchanges and not really paying attention to, to defense. He was really trying to get his shots off. As a result, he was kind of forcing them, getting a little wide, uh, leaning a little bit to where he could have been countered against a better athlete. But he also showed he also showed Chen. He also showed some mental toughness because the guy the guy landed. The guy landed on. The guy put some pressure on him. The guy didn't fold immediately. 
and he was he had to work through a, a few spots not a, a intense adversity but he he had to fight back he had to fight through he had to fight he had to fight through something because this guy was fighting back but that that uh counter i want to say is that left hook uh it sounded like a gunshot and uh when that guy fell i was like i was, I was like oh sh- shit i couldn't believe it. i stopped it and called everybody in the house said y'all need to watch this and they're like did he kill him I was like, no. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, it looked like somebody standing in, in, in like the tenth row shot him, because that's even what it sounded like. It was did, like, oh my goodness. Did you see the way in slow motion how his head turned? Yeah, like, and it, the weirdest thing is like the angle he threw it at was like a shot. It wasn't a shovel hook. It was kind of like a half kinda, hook, half uppercut, kinda. Yeah, yeah, it came at at that angle where it just caught him just perfectly to put him out. Which is another thing I, I wanted to comment on. He made the guy came in with a kind of high tight guard. So instead of throwing the shots wide or showing trying to throw them straight where the guy could put his guard together and he'd have to punch through the guard, he kind of took a slight angle with his straight right that he clipped the guy with before and that, that put him that um got him off balance and hurt him. And then when he threw that hook, knowing that the guy had that high tight guard, instead of trying going with an uppercut where he could have been countered if he missed, instead he kind of half uppercut, half hooked it and kind of sharpen the arc of it so it would come right in between it come right in between the guard and clip the chin it's it's really hard to to adjust the line of delivery on your strikes like that and i know that guy isn't a world-class opponent but doing it real time and making those sort of adjustments and punching technique and placement show that this guy isn't just the typical mixed martial arts fighter that's something you see from a veteran who's been in and kind of learned the craft and learned how to operate around things aaron pico is able to do that because he's actually a fairly high-level boxer, and he he knows how to make adjustments on the fly as regards to his striking. And you saw that he came out gunning offense, 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 getting in exchanges. Then once he realized this was going to go a little bit, you started seeing him pick his shots and how he's delivering the shots, sitting down on his shots a little bit more, putting more power into it, and that's when he put the fight away. So Pico's got a he's got a high upside. He's a world-class athlete, and he's he's almost world-class in two different sports. But even though he's world-class in those things individually, it still takes time and adjustment to acclimate yourself to a sport like this. And unlike the other guys who are fighting guys who are 1-3 and three or 5-11, and 11, he's fighting guys with winning records. He's fighting guys who are active. When he, in his first fight, he fought a guy who looked like he, he belongs in a full other weight class than him. I think that was also part of the problem. But um, Pico, he's obviously for real. And like I said, he, he's a prospect, but he's fighting guys that he probably shouldn't be fighting until his third or fourth fight. And he's fighting him in a second, his first and a second. So I admire his his faith in himself. I admire his confidence and getting right back in there instead of, you know, you see Ronda Rousey lose. She was out for like a year. Pigo had a lot of pressure on him. And he comes back, what, three months later against another tough guy with more experience than him? I mean, you just have to applaud that sort of moxie and that sort of guts and that sort of courage. And, and I will admit, he looks a little wild. He looks a little rough. But... You can see you can see the fundamentals of the of the world class wrestling. You can see the fundamentals of the high level boxing. I think the more he gets comfortable, the more and more you'll see from him, is regards to his technique and how effective he's going to be. I, I just hope they don't fast track him. They need to just give him three or four, three to five fights, working with this kind of caliber opponent, let him kind of find his identity, and then move him up another level. He's he's a potential star for them, and they don't need to burn him out, taking any more crazy chances with him. So, what would you do if you were him? What what type of fight would you put him up in next? I, I'd go with the same kind of guy, like a guy who maybe has a winning record nine and 
nine and five, seven, seven and four, seven and three, a guy who's got skills, a guy who's got experience. Because, I mean, at this point, anything else is going to be a setback for him. He's clearly determined to be a little bit on a faster track than the average prospect. So you just find him guys who can test him in different areas. Find him a guy who's a little bit hard to hit, who knows how to move around the cage a little bit. That's, that's where the fighter development comes in. You don't just throw him in with anybody who's got a good record. You put him in with guys who are going to test different aspects of his game. Find a guy who can handle his power. Maybe not a guy who's a big puncher, but find him a guy who, when he hits him, that guy's not going to go away. Find him a guy who's going to make it hard for him to, to land his shots. Find a guy who, who might be able to wrestle with him a little bit. Find a guy who's, a, who's got some athleticism so he sees what it's like when he, he can't just dominate with hand speed and, and, and explosiveness. You just, find, you just get him used to the sport and you get him used to different individual traits or, wep or techniques or weapons so that he can put that, put that away into his file, his computer file, and add that to his skills or his experience that he can lean on when he moves forward and he starts facing guys who are great athletes and great grapplers, who are great athletes and great strikers, who are great wrestlers and great athletes. When, the guy, when he starts facing the guys who have three, four, five, six of the skills, he's already been in certain positions, so he's ready to handle them. A lot of it is just experience and knowing what to do under duress. And you, you learn how to do that by facing them against a wide variety of opponents who can test them in multiple areas. You don't think it works? Look what they did for Steven Thompson. That's, that, that's how they built him out. That's how they built Max Holloway out. So by the time Max Holloway faced the elite guys, he was ready for it. He had faced every single style, every single skill set, every single physical skill set. There was nothing that was going to shake him. He was as good as he's going to be, and he was either going to take the next step or he's going to just go to the back of the line. The similar thing needs to be done with Aaron Pico. We already got the loss out of the way, so there's no pressure about losing. We just need to work on him getting familiar, getting comfortable, and being tested in different key areas. I like what you said about already having the loss out of the way. Cause I think that that's key and not having that pressure on him now. So um, I definitely think he's a special fighter, and I, and I like what I saw. I like the fact that he you know, forced himself to get back in there and get back in there soon. I think it's guts. We have, we have champions who are like, oh, I need... I need to really think about what I want to do with my life. And he's just like a humiliating loss. I mean, that was worse than Eddie Alvarez's loss to Conor McGregor. First shot and then submitted. Mm -hmm. You know, against a, against a journeyman. That, that's humiliating. So, and he said, you know what? Fine, I'll take it. He owned it. He showed up at the press conference. Did all the interviews. Came back. He dropped the weight class. Came back in. Was in a, was in a bit of a tough fight. And came out victorious. That's that's championship medal. He may never be a champion, but that's the kind of mindset and that's the kind of faith you have to have if you ever want to have any hope of being a champion. True, true. Um, is there anything else that stood out to you from the Bellator card? Uh, it was nice seeing Roy Nelson. He, he actually looked a little bit better. He was using his takedowns more. He was actually ground and pounding. Had he done this in the UFC, there's about two fights that he lost on decision that he would have won just off activity alone, because he would have been landing strikes. Derek Lewis, if he would have thrown anything on the ground against Derek Lewis, he would have beat him. In his last fight against Volkov, if he would have thrown any consistent ground about, he would have won the fight. But he didn't do it for some reason. This fight, he seemed, a little, he seemed like he was in a little bit better shape. Um, he, didn't, he, his, he can't pull the trigger quite as well, which is why I'm thinking his power wasn't all the way there. But he showed a little, little bit more discipline in applying pressure. And uh, that little... That little thing where he splits the guard with his lead hand and works the uppercut. I hadn't seen him do, the, do that ever, or maybe in a while. But either way, it was nice to see that little development being put in there because a lot of guys cover up against him that way. And oftentimes, he step backs and reset or he keeps spamming shots. 
and that little where you control the guard and guide him into the uppercut, that's a real slick move that uh, you see in boxing a lot, but you don't see nearly enough in MMA. But uh, I think he has a chance to be a Bellator uh, heavyweight champion, and I still believe he should have left the first time instead of staying with the UFC for the other three or four years. They didn't. They don't like him. They didn't want him there, and I have no idea why he stayed this long. Okay. All right. Good thoughts here. Good thoughts. Let's let's move on to the UFC card here, where, as we mentioned, um, there wasn't anything really to kind of talk about here. Oven St. Prue submitted Yushin Okami via a uh, Von Flew choke, and I think that that's kind of the big story because it's like, what the hell? How does Okami get caught by that? But yeah, I've heard people saying there was a fix. There was a fix in there. Maybe he just took the easy way out because he didn't want to get knocked out by a guy who's like 40 pounds heavier than him. But looking at that fight there, what do you take away from that, that main event? Not much you can take away from it. I mean, one, first of all, even though it was the main event, it was actually the co-main event because the one before the fight before it was clearly better contested and had better caliber of fire in it. Um, it got o, it got Ovin St. Pru. It got him paid. He got 50000 for the finish. He got another win. So what, he's on a two, three fight win streak. So that's great. But it didn't prove anything. I mean, we, we already know where he stands in the light heavyweight division as far as the elite fighters. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, that's all you can say about it. It didn't tell me anything I didn't know about him. It didn't show me anything I didn't know about him. Um, it went pretty much the way we thought it was going. And uh, that's pretty much all you can say about it. Well, let's talk about the real main event then. Um, Jessica, Jessica Gadelia and just oh, excuse me, Jessica Andras and Claudia Gadelia fought in the hell of a war, um, where Andras got the win. What what do, how do you look at at this fight? And um, tell me what do you do with these two women going forward? First thing after because I I worked I worked with a Gadelia's team a little bit before when when she fought Carolina Kovacavich. And after that fight, we talked about the after the fight, we talked about the following week. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but I said, in my opinion, I said what she needs to do is take another fight or two with lesser fighters. Gir- girls were on winning streaks, but lesser fighters, lesser athletes, lesser fighters. So that because I know know she's changing up her style a lot. She's adding a lot of new things. As you notice, her boxing was a lot cleaner. Her her footwork is a lot cleaner than it was when she was with uh, Pedaneris and Nova and Yao. So she's adding different things. She's work, working different philosophies, different strategies. And my logic is you always want to face lesser people who you can actually be in a live fight with, but you can work on refining the skills you're adding. Because just because you added the skills and you worked them in in the training room doesn't mean that you, that you have them down completely when you're in a tough fight, when you're under a lot of pressure and you're under duress. That's when your mastery of the skills really gets showcased. So what I was hoping was that she'd fight maybe Tisha Torres, Beck Rawling, fight uh, Felice Herrig, somebody who was tough and could test her in key areas and let her really see how well she had her footwork down, how well she had her poise down, how well she had her counterpunching down, how well she had her jab down, find out the highs and lows of each technique and each approach she's using and how to find that middle ground where she can be effective but also maintain her gas tank and maintain, maintain her line of defense against competent fighters. But instead, her team decided that, her and her team decided they were gonna go fight Andrade. And I still thought she could beat Andrade. I feel she's a better athlete. In my opinion, she's the much better technical fighter and the much better defensive fighter. But the thing about it is Andrade is very physical. Andrade sets a very high pace 
and a drudge is very durable. Those two things create a lot of problems for somebody who's notoriously had cardio problems and has usually been able to physically manhandle the majority of opponents she's faced. She faced a girl who she wasn't able to just ragdoll, intimidate with her punching power, and just outclass with athleticism. Because Andrade is a comparable athlete. Andrade is just as strong, if not stronger. And Andrade is just as tough, if not tougher. The difference is Andrade's gas tank and the, and the pace she fights at. And the first round, you saw what she needed to do. She was working the jab. She was tying her, she was tying her up on the inside. She was moving her feet. She was turning her. She was walking her into shots. She's throwing short combinations and getting out. But Andrade was constantly making her work. She was constantly throwing punches, constantly applying pressure, constantly feigning, constantly getting her hands on her and getting it grappling exchanges with her to wear down. And Gedalia hadn't, in my opinion, hadn't quite mastered all the adjustments she had made and all the new things she had added to her game to the point where she could navigate those rough spots without overworking herself and burning up her gas tank. It's kind of like the Golovkin Canelo fight. Canelo knows his gas tank is somewhat suspect. So he w works a lot on his defense, his slips, his counters, his pivot, and being able to control a fight without throwing a lot of shots so that he won't wear himself out when he has a guy who's gonna pressure, pressure, pressure. Andrade was putting pressure on Gedalia, and the way she was approaching her was making Gedalia throw shots when she didn't have to throw shots, making her put extra heat on her shots when she didn't have to put extra heat on her shots. All she had to do was flick the jab, throw the one-two, pivot out. Throw the one-two, step around, get, step around Andrade, when Andrade turned, hit her again, step around her again. But she started sitting down on her shots. She started throwing more shots than necessary because she was trying to find some way to break Jessica Andrade's pressure. And instead of just using her footwork and her feints and using a volume of shots and not throwing a lot of power on her shots, she started throwing power. She started sitting down on her shots. She started engaging her in the pocket. And once you start doing that with Andrade, you start letting her take over the fight. And that's when it became a, fight, a matter of pace and conditioning. And Claudia was never going to win a fight of pace and conditioning against Jessica Andrade. She had to slow the fight and control it with sharper punches, feints, footwork, and movement. And then later in, in the fight, that's when she starts putting the power in. That's when she starts looking for the takedown. That's when she starts asserting herself physically. But she went for it too early. And that's what essentially determined the fight. She went all, she went all in early in the fight wasn't able to close the show and Andrade slowly took over and then started just manhandling her and beating her up through rounds two and three. So, and it's not just, oh, sorry, sorry, just to say this, I did a piece called the 10 steps of victory for Claudia Gadelia. If anybody wants to look it out and everything I'm saying now is the same thing that I said prior to the fight. And I went into great detail in writing about that because I, I understand exactly how Andrade's game work and I understand exactly what she's trying to do. She's not super technical. She's not super slick, but the thing is, Gedalia, excuse me, Andrade is a fully formed fighter. She's had a lot of fights. She knows what her best tools are. She knows what her best weapons are. And even though her fight style isn't super technical, her style is very strategically sound and intelligent. And it's all based on making you feel like you're threatened by her constantly being in your face and coming forward. It's kind of like what McGregor, Mayweather did to McGregor. You're throwing all these shots to keep her off you. You're Instead of making little pivots and little slide steps, you're running all over the cage to get away from her when it's not necessary. She doesn't have the technique and she doesn't have the footwork to cut off the cage if you're using pivots, slide steps, circling, and stepping around her. She just doesn't have it. Joanna exposed that. 
Angela Hill exposed that, but you have to be able to maintain your poise. You can't panic and throw more shots, and you can't start loading up on shots trying to put her away early in the first round. That you're going to burn your gas tank out on trying to knock out somebody who is very difficult to hurt. You use a control pace. You frustrate her. You tie her up on the inside. You turn her. You step around. When she gets over, over pursued, then you take her down. You don't take her down when she's fresh. You don't try to walk her down early. You do all that late. But in my opinion, she lost her poise. She still has all the skills and all the physical tools to win the fight. What she, what she lacked was the mastery of the subtle points and a little bit of the ring general, cage generalship necessary to outclass her. Because she has all the tools and all the skills. It's not even close when it comes to tools and skills. But the thing is, Andrade made her fight her fight. She couldn't stay poised enough. And people are going to tell you it's cardio. I don't think it's the cardio. I think it was staying up not sticking with the game plan and that's how I viewed it from the outside looking in I didn't work with them on this fight so I don't know what they did specifically but from the outside looking in it looked like she had the right game plan and then she slowly getting away from it all the way from attempting that guillotine which she shouldn't have done to sitting down on the shots and throwing real heat in the first round just because she was landing on draws so much she started turning up the heat you don't turn up the heat on somebody like that you don't turn it up until late in the second round early in the third when you actually you you got your lead and you've outclassed her and now she's got to make she's got to make a rush to turn the fight around in her favor. That's when you turn up the heat. She did it a little bit too early. She didn't pick her spots appropriately, in my opinion, and that's what cost her the fight. So, did you see anything from either one of these two women that makes you believe that they can defeat Joanna and Jacek? Um, I don't. I really think Claudia, since she's a much better athlete. I think she showed skills that, that would enable her to beat Joanna because she really she really could have beaten Joanna the second fight. She just fought a really stupid fight. She just was trying to t she just assumed she would take her down and finish. That was her whole game plan. I'll take her down, I will finish her. And then when she took her down, she couldn't finish. She didn't have anything else. She wasted all her energy chasing takedowns, hanging on the cage, getting elbowed in the head and knee to the body, trying to fight for takedowns that weren't there, and she wasted her energy and then she got walked down. Given the improvement she's made in her skills, and with the superior athleticism, I'm always going to think that she's a live dog against Joanna because the biggest advantage Joanna had over her was the footwork, the volume, and the pacing. If you get to a point where you have your defense and your counters sharp enough, you can, you can take advantage of that volume by countering heavily, especially when you have that much advantage in power and speed. The thing, the thing about it is her gas tank and it's Seemingly, she has a lack of poise. When she is in, in, in complete control of a fight, it seems she gets away from the game plan and overexerts herself trying to get, get control of the fight. And that was what killed her against Joanna in the first fight. It killed her with Joanna in the second fight. And it killed her against Andrade in this fight. As far as Andrade goes, she didn't show me anything I haven't seen from her, seen from her in the past two years. She just puts you under duress. She puts a lot of pressure on you. And she forces you to throw a lot of shots in the hopes that she can drag you into an exchange or she can wear you down because you can't maintain that pace. The reason it didn't work against Joanna is because Joanna did what Claudia should have did. When she gets in the pocket, you tie her up, you get into you tie her up, you turn her, and then you exit. And as you exit, bam, 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 one, two, three, kick. You exit on strikes, frustrate her, and you get back out. And every time she closes that distance, you tie her up, you turn her, then you release, and you start landing strikes again. You chop her up on the way in, you chop her up on the way out. When she gets to where she wants to get in, you tie her up so she can't do anything, and then you escape, and you start making her pay again. 
Jessica hasn't changed her game. Her game is the same game she had two years ago, it was the same game she had four years ago. It's like little changes, but she hasn't done anything dramatic enough for me to say that she beats Joanna. Her footwork still isn't good enough to get her in position consistently for takedowns. Her defense still isn't good enough to get her in position consistently for takedowns. Her foot, her, her, she can apply a lot of pre- pace and throw a lot of volume, but Joanna's a, a conditioned enough fighter and a smart enough and poised enough fighter that she can match that work rate. She can match it and exceed her in the footwork. So she can keep turning her and she can throw just as so much volume. The only difference is Joanna can slight step pivot and step around Andrade for five rounds straight and match her. She can't, she can't match, she won't ever ramp up the power trying to get her out there. She's just gonna keep scoring the points, keep frustrating her, keep, keep keeping her off balance and keep, and keep on winning rounds to unanimous decisions. So I don't think Andrade is any closer to beating her than she was. And that was only like a year and a half ago, year, year and a half ago. Claudia is a lot closer to beating her than she used to be. But once again, with a loss like this, now she's at least, if Joanna wins, she's another two, three fights away. And that's if Joanna stays at the division. Two more fights, she's high. She surpasses Ronda Rousey's uh, win title defenses. And then she says she's dropping to, he's, she's moving up to, uh, what, strawweight? No, flyweight. She's moving to flyweight anyways. So, I mean, in the next two fights, Claudia would have to beat probably Andrade again and somebody else to even be considered to get a shot at Joanna. I, I, don't, th- I don't think it's realistic at this point. I don't think she's... I think she's another three fights away from a shot minimum, unless somebody else wins the belt. If Rose wins it, it'd probably be Andrade and then Claudia. But um, if Joanna wins it, I don't, I don't see how she gets another title fight before Joanna drops and moves to another division. Mm. All right, I like that. I like that breakdown. Yeah, I, I think both of these women are both um, interesting, but I don't think either one of them becomes a champion while. Joanna is still around. Um, they need her to move up to 125, and I think that she's going to do that sooner rather than later. What else stood out for you on this card here? Uh, I'm trying to think. I just I didn't really have a lot on the card. The biggest fight I was really paying attention to was was the women's fight because I just thought it was one of the best fights they had in the year, and they didn't didn't disappoint. It was one of the best fights of the year. Um, that, that was pretty much the fight I, I was most focused on. I, I saw the saw the other fights, but it wasn't anything that I was really enamored with or j- just had to take notes on. I was really just in there for that one fight. That fight was pretty much why I watched the entire card. Hmm. Interesting there, man. So before we go, as always, you know, I want to talk about what are you working on this week? What do you have that's um, coming out for your sports coverage in the next couple of days? Um, I really don't have anything coming out in the next couple of days. They've, they've announced a lot of fights, and they had another a lot of fights already. So for MMA ratings, I'm already breaking down Poirier, Pettis, even though it's like about another month and a half away. I'm I'm actually doing another another breakdown for Brunson and Machida. I'm already I'm already kind of getting those finishing the final touches on them. I'm trying I'm actually trying to do things a little bit in advance, just so if I need to make any last minute change or adjustment. I had the freedom to instead of rushing to meet a deadline and maybe maybe missing out on a key piece of information that could uh, help a fan or anybody else who wants to know more about a fight. So I'm trying to do it a little bit in advance. And there's so many fights that keep announcing that it, it kind of gets hard to pick and choose which ones to really go in on. But everything I've, I've got coming up is going to be probably at least four weeks to six weeks away. So I, I got some time before I have anything that I, that I know Oh wait, excuse me. I have one thing coming out on Combat Press. 
about uh, it's about analytics. I did a, a similar piece on MMA ratings, but this piece I'm doing now is kind of talking about the bias for and against it. Um, recently, I had an incident with a former MMA fighter slash coach on uh, Twitter. Danny Castillo works for the Team Alpha Male, and he had some issues with a person like me who's advising coaches and fighters on what they should do when I don't have a back when I don't haven't actually competed in actual fights. He felt that I don't really have a right or a place or anything I can contribute to a professional fighter because I am not a professional fighter. And so I'm kind of discussing the uh, what people who do what I do bring to the table and why they're a valuable part of mixed martial arts uh, of mixed martial arts competition. I actually tried to get him on the show, but he felt some kind of way about me questioning some of the decisions the team alpha male makes in the corner. He felt kind of offended by that, <laughs> so he didn't want to. He was like, uh, "You're questioning our our cage IQ," and I'm I'm not gonna lie about it. I think they've done some some curious things in the corner for their fighters in certain fights. They're good camp, but they they do some things that kind of confound me a little bit. And he seemed to take he seemed to take offense to that, so he refused to come on the show. <laughs> well, but I tried to know. get him on. <laughs> I mean, hey, we can't please everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, really, you really, you really can. I, I kept trying to explain to him like coaches who actually coach fighters and world class fighters come to me for this. I'm not searching them out. I'm not telling them I'm a fighter. And I was trying the worst. The thing that I was really concerned about was I was trying to be polite and professional because I'm kind of when it comes to talking to fighters, I'm representing the show, which means I'm representing MMA ratings and the other sites I write for, Severe MMA, Combat Press. I don't want to disrespect people because they are doing a job. It's a tough job. I don't do the job, and I have a lot of respect for them. So I'm trying to toe the line between making my point and not totally getting run over by him. So it's like I wasn't going to try to argue with him. I'm trying to get him to understand my perspective. Like people who are ranked people come to me for advice because I see something that they find value in. It doesn't mean I think I know what you're going through because I don't. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm right all the time because it doesn't. It doesn't mean I have had this experience because I don't. I'm just telling you from a strategical and technical point things you should look for, things you should watch out for, things you can do. It just so happens that like 95% of the time I'm right because I know what I'm talking about and that's why they come to me and that's why I said he should be on the show. I'm like, you can come on as a fighter and a coach and, he, and you could talk to me and he's like, well, what would I talk to you about? Well, we could talk about the value that a guy like me has when other fighters and professional coaches come to me for advice and you could tell me why you wouldn't do that. I could tell you why they do it because I've had the conversations with those guys as well. But he felt upset because I said they might have a little bit suspect. Basically, long story short, to just close this up, Yari Rodriguez is working with Team Alpha Male. I said it'd be good because he could work on his grappling and his scrambling and his defensive wrestling. And somebody goes, oh, yeah, they're a really good camp. They're a really smart camp. And I was like, well, their cage IQ seems to be suspect. Sometimes they've done some really weird things in fights. He took that to heart. And I guess I understand why he took it to heart. But I've said things against other people, and they, they, we've had a discussion about it. He seen, he got kind of offended by it, and it was it was all fine. It's all good. He's he's entitled to his opinion, but I was just trying to make a point and have a conversation. I thought we could continue this conversation on the show in kind of a longer form, instead of going through 140 characters where things can be misinterpreted or mis mistaken. You know, as far as an insult or questioning of someone's uh, accomplishments or knowledge. I was just trying well, to further the conversation and see if I could learn something from a different perspective and hopefully share it with our fans. But it just didn't get to that point so uh i try to get him on the show but that's what the, the next piece i'm doing is about trying to explain the value 
and the bias against people who do what I do for uh, combat sports athletes. Well, play nice because we don't want this guy to show up at your house. I know, right? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, dude, is this really happening? So, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Just, I just was respectful, told him, hey, thank you for the time. I'm not trying to disrespect you. I'm just telling you what I do and telling you why people have value in it. He didn't want to hear it, and that's fine, too, because some people just don't value what I do, and that's fine. That's, that's fine. That, that's their right, and that's their opinion. But uh, I just wish we could actually have the conversation. He's a, he's a good guy. He's, he's got a good team. I'm a big fan of them, but, you know, we're going to agree to disagree. I've disagreed with Trevor Whitman before. He didn't have a problem with it. He knew about it. He was cool with it. Marcus Davis disagreed with him, too. He was cool with it. Just part of what comes with doing the job you do on his side and comes with part of doing the job I do on my side. So that's a little bit of drama you may have missed out on. I'm glad I missed out on that, sir. <laughs> but with that in mind, you know, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. As always, you know, I'm working on quite a bit. Of things. I, got some, I, I did some good coverage for ADCC this past weekend. I'm working on some stuff for, you know, just daily coverage, news coverage for um, the week as we normally do. So be sure to check out all of our sites. Where can they find us, Sean? Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. And uh, what's the last one? iTunes. 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 And of course, you can find us All on right, Twitter man. anytime if you want to talk fights, talk strategies, or you just have a question you want on the show. Me and Raphael, you can always find us there. You you tweet us or direct message us. We will always get back to you because we always make time for the fans who make this show possible. Exactly. And as always, man, thank you for your time. Everyone, thank you for listening to our content. Be sure to like and share our work. And everyone, have another great week. Yeah, you, you take it easy, and uh, you need to find Cam uh, an offensive line and a wide receiver. It ain't gonna be, it ain't gonna end well for that man this year. Don't get me started. <laughs> All right, man. All right, man. Have a good one. You too.